Today, it's our great uh, joy, privilege and joy to be joined by um, Reverend Aaron Plink. Or not, almost Reverend Aaron Plink. Almost, yeah, yeah, almost. yeah. A couple more weeks. Yeah, just, uh, just approved to be Reverend Aaron Plink. Uh, Aaron's a chaplain at Pruitt Hospice here in Durham, and he received his MDiv from Yale Divinity School and his PHM from Duke uh, as a Westbrook Fellow in Theology and Medicine. His work that he'll be presenting from today is part of a pastoral study project he's doing for the Louisville Institute for a grant he received. Um, it's entitled, uh, How Closely Do We Follow the Cross of Jesus Suffering in the Quandary of Scripture and Pastoral Care? I'm very excited about Aaron uh, solving that quandary for us. Um, <laughs> Don't overpromise, Brad. Don't yeah. overpromise. No, yeah, I'm still uh, hyping you up. Well, it's great to be with you all after years of listening to these uh, seminars and learning from them. Um, it's good to be here. So, what I want to do today is uh, look at... Um, the role of Jesus and the suffering Jesus in pastoral care, and sort of what we can learn from Jesus, and what the struggles are when we work with the model of Jesus um, for, for palliative and pastoral care. It's sort of an eclectic methodology. I'm with Graham Ward, who says, for now, what is important to grasp is that an examination of doctrine that is lived will erase academic distinctions between subdisciplines because it will continually cross and recross parameters that institutions and the development of a theology as a purely academic activity have created. In other words, this is my justification for talking about theology, art, scripture, pastoral care, and sort of a loose weave of things. But those of you who are clinicians know that we get our theology from all sorts of sources, from the art that we see, from the scriptures that we read, from the communities that we're a part of, and so when you enter into a clinical work, you get theologies that sort of appear from a variety of places. Um, so we gather our, our lived theology, as they are now calling it, from a variety of places. So there's several different kinds of evidence in here, but I invite you to think with me about them. We're people, first and foremost, in stories. And I'm sorry that Ray Barfield isn't here, because I'd have him come up and do, do that beautiful thing that he does to tell us the way we're in stories, but we all exist as whole people in stories of religious communities, in stories of families, in stories of geography and place um, in certain times, and so we bring the stories of our families, our religious traditions, um, we bring all of that with us when we're, when we're sick, and so when we're chaplains or other clinicians, we hear bits of all those stories woven together, and the weaving together of those stories um, is what comprises a life. So, I have a confession to make. <laughs> when I was a kid, I, um, I was born prematurely, and I, had a, I have a mild case of cerebral palsy. And I grew up in, in Raleigh, and so when I was a kid, I was over here a lot with the pediatric neurology team at uh, Duke Children's Hospital. And uh, going to Duke when I was growing up was never a good thing. <laughs> When, uh, when we wanted to do fun things, we went to UNC Chapel Hill, because literally, I hated coming here. Um, so I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So I spent a lot of time here when I was a kid. The people were nice, but it's not always easy. The other place I spent a lot of time was Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in North Raleigh, which is still there on Creedmoor Road. It's really big now. Um, so as I, I shuttled between these two places, between Good Shepherd Lutheran and North in uh, Duke Hospital, I began to wonder what the two places had to do with each other, um, <clears throat> what the love of Jesus had to do with all these trips to Duke that I was making. And I think that's the question 
that all the patients, not only Christian, but all patients come when they come to Duke Medicine is they ask, what does the God I trust and believe in have to do with why I'm sitting here and what I'm doing here? So they bring, these, they bring the, their beliefs about God into this place and are constantly trying to reconcile what they believe about God and how they try to act faithfully in the midst of medicine as they're sitting here at Duke. Needless to say, my brother, who's a psychoanalyst in Los Angeles, has a field day with the fact that I'm back here after spending my early childhood here. <laughs> I tell him, to put his, tell him to put his Freud away all the time. <laughs> but all religions have these narratives about what it means to suffer faithfully. Okay? Uh, this is a Christian account, because the account of the self, or absence of a self, that suffers is different in Buddhism than it is in Christianity, than it is in um, Islam. But I, I think, you know, going with the history of religions, people like Chicago, uh, you know, um, going back all the way to people like um, Eliade, but also Hans Reisenbrut, and some of the other um, theorists of religion, Tom Tweed, who used to be at UNC Chapel Hill, everyone will tell you that religions have a way of talking about suffering and crisis, and that's one of the things that people draw on when they navigate crises like illness. Arthur Frank, in his book, A Wounded Storyteller, talks about illness as a shipwreck of the story of our life. So, <clears throat> the more I thought about this, the more I realized that we patients I see, Christian patients that I see, in my own work as a hospice chaplain, Christ is a paradox, because he's both a healer and to suffer. So he's one who heals, but also one who suffers a painful death. And so Christian patients are sort of sometimes oscillating between Jesus, who I know could heal me, because they read the text, your faith will make you well, and the Jesus who cried on the cross, Abba, Abba, Rima, Sawaktani, feeling totally abandoned by God, dying a terrible death. But both images of Jesus are real, and I think patients sort of oscillate between them. And that's what's so, that's what's so tricky. But I think what, what I tell people is, uh, pastorally, is that it's all true. You know, Jesus knows that healing is possible, though it never says Jesus healed all people who came to him, and that's crucial. But it also means that Jesus can give us a map to how to die well, which is also part of the Jesus that we can follow. But the question is, when do you make a practical shift in discipleship between these two images of Jesus that are so present in Scripture? And what do we understand healing to be? Because I can say I've seen Jesus heal people fully in spirit, even as their body decays. Okay. So this, this suffering Savior was an interesting idea, very... Um, very revolutionary. And it gets taken up by St. Paul in all sorts of ways. And uh, the book I would recommend to you is, uh, is called Cruciformity by um, Michael Gorman, where he talks about Paul's catalogs of his suffering as a way of imitating Christ and being his, his disciple. But the, the passage I wanted to look at today was this perplexing passage from 2 Corinthians. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. And it's pentote nekon to yesu in 
so much heat. So that's carrying in our body the death of Jesus is actually the accurate translation of the Greek. Um, but what does it mean then and when you're sick to carry the death of Jesus in your body so that the life of Jesus may be mis- made visible in your body? I mean, practically, that's, that's, that's the claim that Paul is making. <coughs> um, and I think it may have to do with something about suffering well. Paul boasts, this comes from an interesting book by Jennifer Glancy called Corporal Knowledge on Early Christian Bodies. Paul boasts of his beatings for theological reasons. He believes the story of Jesus' death is legible in the scar tissue that has formed over the welts and lacerations inflicted by rod and whip. Paul's share in the sufferings of Jesus is a source of corporal knowledge and ultimately personal power. This is powerful stuff. But it's also very dangerous. <clears throat> because, it, because I can tell you, and I'm sure some of you who work in congregations or have known sick Christians, know that this can be true, that we can see people who maintain their faith in spite of incredible sickness and suffering and hardship, and it really is an inspiration. It's like, I, I don't know that I'd still be able to say thank you, Jesus, if I was suffering this stuff. And, and, you know, I've, I, my faith has been strengthened by the people I've seen in my hospice work that are able to maintain their faith. But the other thing is, this is, can be a call to people, or it can be interpreted as a call for people to say, if I want to be faithful, I have to suffer. And I just, you know, sometimes I want to tell people, no, no, like, we have, we have tools to help you suffer less so that you can you know, follow Jesus in other ways, because we don't just follow Jesus in his suffering. We follow Jesus in his work of prayer and healing and community. So we can have an isolated, myopic view of what discipleship means in the midst of illness if we don't read the whole story, if we just sort of read a snippet of it. So I like to tell people, I understand that Jesus knows our suffering, but, you know, if you take the morphine, there's other things you'll maybe be able to do. Um, And I don't say that, I mean, I don't really say that tongue-in-cheek. I mean, pain can get in your way, can get in the way of living a normal, connected, communal life, which we're called to be as part of the body of Christ. So the question is, you know, what, what what does restoration look like to the extent that we can... Um, in the midst of illness, and how do we think of that restoration as a part of, of Christian practice and not just suffering with Jesus needlessly? So everybody gets, gets into this notion that Jesus had to suffer worse than anybody else because it comes from the penal substitutionary model of atonement. How many divinity people do I have in here? Okay, so a lot. But, but basically, Anselm in, in the Middle Ages decides to say, Jesus died to um, satisfy God's wrath for all the human sin. And for, a, for, for this transaction to occur, it all had to be satisfied. So it had to be really, 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 really painful, such that only Jesus could suffer this much. Well, I think that's a theological overlay, but it's really popular, hence I'm dating myself here. You know, the popularity of Mel Gibson's The Passion, which was just so graphic and gruesome. And all the historical people will tell you, like, it wouldn't have been that gory and graphic, 
but that gore and graph becomes part of people's spiritual imagination, I think, in really unhelpful ways. <laughs> so the early Christians art, early Christian art, didn't have Christ on a cross. They just had Christ. And then they had Christ sort of hanging placidly. And then around the plague times, you get these really graphic crosses, starting around the times of the plague in the Middle Ages. Now, I think in some ways, this comforted people. Because they really, in this art, people believed Jesus is suffering as we are, so Jesus understands. And I think in some ways, that art is comforting. But there's a, a trilogy of books by uh, Richard Vladislaw at Fordham, The Beauty of the Cross, um, The Triumph of the Cross, and... Um, Beauty of the Cross, the Triumph of the Cross, and I can't think of the third one, where he looks at the relationship between what's going on in culture and what's going on in representations of Jesus on the cross, and the connections are, are fascinating. But Christians have extreme ways of following this. Um, this is from a live crucifixion that they do every year in the Philippines uh, on Holy Week, and they actually crucify these men as Jesus was crucified. Um, passion enactment. And I forgot the book, but they also did this. Um, a friend of mine from Emory wrote a book on um, called Remember That You Are Dust, where he looks at the penitente practices in northern New Mexico. And the penitentes in northern New Mexico, until the, into the 20th century, also used to practice crucif live crucifixions as a devotional practice. They've stopped that. But what they do do is practices of mortification during Holy Week, where they fast, they, are, they still are whipped, um, where they talk about, um, in strange ways, how this reminds them of their mortality. They're called to suffer, but also they're called to be in solidarity with the suffering. They're called to tend the suffering. Um, and so it becomes this really powerful way that they enact and understand their solidarity as Christians with the world. Some die. And there were, there were reported deaths among these practices in northern New Mexico, too. They try not to, but there are. Right, that's not the goal. Right, that's not the goal. But Christian art also forms us. The images of Jesus that we see shape our understanding of the Jesus we're called to follow. So I went to a Catholic high school run by Dominican nuns from Adrian, Michigan. When I, was in, when I was in high school in Florida. And by matter of school policy, every room and every office had to have a cross in it. This crucifix with Jesus on it. So if you see that every day, you're going to think over time, that's the model of discipleship. I'm hanging here, you know, if I'm on, if I'm on the ICU, I'm, you know, I'm hanging here with Jesus. If I'm on the bone marrow transplant unit, I'm hang, you know, it becomes... It, it shapes your imagination. <clears throat> so the question is, clinically, if you're hanging here, how long do you have to hang? When I was in residency, I was called up to the ICU one night, the medical ICU, to a woman who was in her early 30s. This was at Yale New Haven Hospital. She was going for a second experimental lung transplant, or maybe they were going to try to transport her to Massachusetts General Hospital. She was in her 30s. She had kids. So she called me and she said, Chaplain, I'm a devout Catholic, but they're not giving me much of a chance to survive this chicken, chicken transplant. 
Mass General will do it, but the chances don't look good. So she said, you know, I know Jesus suffered, and I'm suffering too, but do I have to do this, or can I just faithfully give up? So the question is, is there a faithful way to give up? And I'm not sure that people always understand the theological resources that allow them to think of giving up as a practical practice of discipleship. Because we've seen Jesus hanging. But what did Jesus do? Right? He doesn't, as, as the Anselmians would have it, suffer for as long as possible, right? He was the first, scripture says, you know, the, the guards went and broke the legs of the thieves because they weren't dead yet, but Jesus had already died. So he provides us a model. He commends his soul to God, entrusts his mother to care of the beloved disciples, admits that he feels forsaken, but ultimately just says, into your hands I commend my spirit, and let's go. But nobody talks about this in medical ethics. Nobody talks about the letting go. And the patients don't either, really. So I think Jesus gives, and this is really what the, the, the Louisville Institute grant I'm working on is, Try to develop this Christocentric model for the cessation of care. To say, yes, giving up can be, a mo- can be, if you read the scriptures carefully, a following of Jesus. And this is the other question I think we have to ask. Is illness a cross? Which is to say, is everything we suffer like the cross of Christ? Right? Is the suffering of an illness for natural causes the same thing as a political persecution because of the following of, of God? Or are they different? There's a book called The Heart of the Gospel, um, Suffering in the Early Christian Message, and the author argues that Paul, when he talks about suffering, is not talking about all suffering. He's talking about the suffering people receive when they follow Jesus. Okay? So there's a difference between the suffering of discipleship and the suffering of illness. Is that distinction practically helpful? I I mean, I maybe, maybe not. Those of you working on THDs maybe can figure it out. But um, I think it's something we have to think seriously about. But this notion of the sharing of the sufferings of Jesus becomes really powerful, especially in Catholic theology, in this interesting and at times powerful and at times... I read this text one summer while I was working at the Institute for Care at the End of Life almost eight years ago, this John Paul II's letter, Salvifica Dolores. And I'm going to read this. He said, those who participate in Christ's sufferings have before their eyes the paschal mystery of the cross and resurrection in which Christ descends in a first phase all the way to the extreme limits of human weakness and impotence, indeed, he dies nailed to the cross. But if at the same time in this weakness his elevation is accomplished, confirmed by the power of the resurrection, then this means that the weakness of all human sufferings can be permeated by the power of God, which is manifested in the cross of Christ. According to this concept, to suffer needs to become particularly receptive, particularly open to the working of the salvific powers of God, offered to humanity in Christ. In him, God has confirmed his desire to act especially by means of suffering, which is man's weakness and emptying of self, 
in his desire to manifest his power precisely in this weakness and emptying of self. That's really dangerous, but at the same time really compelling. And I'm not sure I know quite what to make of it. But here again is John Paul II, who, who even in his weakness, kept ostensibly trying to faithfully lead the church. And he said, I want to grow weak before the eyes of the world to show them that God's power is in me. So, the other story, this, some patients you never forget, I think clinicians understand. So the other woman that I'll never forget was a, she was from Long Island. She was a patient in, on the oncology unit at Yale. She was a devout Catholic. And I asked her how she was doing, and she looked at me, and she goes, I'm stage, she literally looked at me and said in a New York way, I'm stage four metastatic, baby. I'm supposed to be dead, but I'm not. Why? Because I'm a witness to God's power. My faith is, is, sustains me. Keep me alive forever? No. But I can be a witness. And that's what she believes she was trying to do. She was trying to tell people about God's, her experiences of God's presence and power in the midst of her illness. So she believed that she was, in this sense, a martyr. No, she was a nurse. She said, I, I make them give me my numbers every day. She said, I'm a nurse. I know I'm declining. I know this is not going well. She said, I'm under no illusions here. But she said, still, I know God's with me, and that's what I'm going to tell people. So the question then for patients is really, how closely do we follow? And the, and the answers to this in Christian theology are much different, right? Tom as a campus, among others, have urged the imitation of Christ, so much so that the mystics, Julian of Norwich, and others will pray, God send me suffering so I might suffer as Jesus did. John Wesley believes that we can become perfect in this life through grace. And Gene Outka, who's a Lutheran ethicist, and I have to admit I'm a Lutheran, so I have, you know, Augustine was in, in the formula I had as a child, I'm sure. Um, notes that we follow at a distance. So he's saying, we're not Jesus. Our suffering is not the suffering of Jesus. Our suffering doesn't save the world. We are children of God, but we're not children of God like that. So we might follow Jesus, but we follow at this notion of at a distance. So we can't imitate and shouldn't try to um, the way of Christ in our lives. But for some, there's comfort in knowing that uh, Jesus was crucified because it shows that God knows our struggle. Theologian David Kelsey calls this understanding Jesus as a quote, he calls it fellow sufferer in a tremendous little book called Imagining Redemption where he looks at the story of one family and, and tries to think theologically through the difference that Jesus could make in the midst of uh, this situation of a, of a family who underwent huge tragedy. And I think there is some, you know, there are theological questions, and I'm not going to, I know we have a mixture of med school and div school people here. There are a mixture of theological responses to did Jesus suffer or not. The Patripatrius controversy in early patristic thoughts, the notion that Jesus suffered that appears in, in Jürgen Moltmann and Kitamori, the theology of the pain of God. So there, there are different um, theological responses to you know, what part of Jesus suffered, depending on your theory of hypostatic union. But let me tell you, clinically, I've never had someone talk about their, their formula of hypostatic union clinically. 
right? So they see Jesus suffering, and they just read the scripture. And, and it's, it's sort of Hans Frey's notion of the, the, the Jesus that we follow is not the Jesus that we try to figure out metaphysically, as in maybe a Thomistic system or a scholastic system. The Jesus is the one we follow through the narrative of scripture. That's why I was going to try to maybe talk about the hypostatic union, but I just decided. Mm. That, that it's, it's an important question, but it's a complicated question, and it's a technical question. Um, but it can have a, 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 their drawbacks. If we understand our call to follow Jesus as a call to endure needless suffering, they forget that suffering is what is done to Jesus, not what Jesus does. Under his own power, Jesus is a healer, one who relieves suffering and restores individual to community. So I think medicine, rightly understood, can participate in this ministry of healing and restorations of individuals to common life. But I think it also can help individuals reach the note, and you know, this is the entire team, presuming that there's chaplains and social workers and community clergy involved, um, can rightly understand this, you know, participate in the ministry of healing and restoration to common life, which may help people be accompanied to the letting go. Um, there's a really powerful piece, I think it was two weeks ago, in the Christian Century by Isaac Villegas at Chapel Hill Mennonite, where he talks about the ways that his congregation accompanied one member who was dying um, in the hospital. And they, what they did is they showed up and they sang hymns around his bed as he was dying. <coughs> Those people at Chapel Hill Mennonite can't sing. <laughs> they really can't. I've been to services there. Um, and finally, I think we have to rely on the Christian hope. Remember and remind patients that God's will is not only done on the cross, it is done in the resurrection and the transformation of the body beyond illness, suffering, and pain. So Easter is the final, Easter I think is the final hope for our lives and Jesus' life. So that we're not caught in this thinking that all suffering is meaningful or that all suffering is necessarily God's only will for us. Because people can get trapped in guilt. And, but people also can lament the ways that their own, their own actions have caused their medical suffering. You know, the confession of sin. I have one patient on hospice now who, uh, you know, he has emphysema and, and horrible lung function, and that's what he's dying of. And he said, look, I did this because I smoked four packs a day for 40 years. Like, I'm, I'm like this because of what I did, my addictions. Um, and it also gets more complicated, too, when I was over at the VA and, and seen patients with Asian orange, and I'm sure Warren has seen this too, patients with, or any people who worked with, with the VA patients, patients who said, yep, yeah, I have this cancer, and it's probably due to the fact that I was around a lot of Asian orange. And so what does my sovereign say about my participation in systems of militarism, the, the consequences of the draft, um, you know, the complex reasons that we the complex structures that we're caught in, the social sins that we're caught in, that can cause our medical suffering. But also to remind people of, you know, Jesus' forgiveness, um, even in the midst of his suffering, right? Because he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. It's the other thing he says. So, that's, that's that. <laughs> so, 
I hope that this was helpful or provocative or at least somewhat sensible. Um, but I just want to hear what you all think. I'm interested uh, in this idea of giving up and how you know I've heard many, many patients and clinicians and family members and all sorts of people talk about giving up at the end of life and how that sort of plays into this idea that medicine ha dominates the illness narrative. That if you don't do what the doctors recommend, then I mean, you're welcome to do whatever you want to do, but you're giving up. You're not getting a lung transplant. And I wonder if it fails to acknowledge that there are other things to do aren't medical, but aren't giving up. I also wonder that language of giving up, the flip side of that is all efforts must bend towards the therapeutic. <coughs> that if you're praying, you should be praying that your lungs are healed or that you're restored to life or whatever, and not that you acknowledge, you know, praying for some miracle, physical miracle, and not that you, there, there's a miracle that's already occurred, as you acknowledge that Christ is risen. Um, and so I just, I'm interested in that. I think two things. One is, I think people often don't understand how much the desire to treat is caught in the economics of medicine. There's a really good book by Sharon Kaufman called Ordinary Medicine that's published by Duke Press, where she talks about the ways that what was once considered extraordinary treatment, the drug companies, the, you know, the drug companies, the hospitals and everything, lobby to make it covered so it becomes normal. So the course of normal treatment, right, keeps getting pushed further and further and further out. You know, it's, it, but that kind of reminds me of the economics of it. I mean, when I was in residency at Yale, I'll never forget the CEO, the, the chief economic officer of the hospital, CFO, came and said, as a human being, the most painful sight in this hospital is all the human suffering. And his chief financial officer, the most painful sight in this hospital is an empty ICU bed. Because they're expensive to maintain, and if you can't build for them. So I think people have to understand the economics of treatment. And, you know, but I also tell people, we're mortal, right? That's what, uh, you know, those of us who do Ash Wednesday, we're not giving up. We're recognizing the fact that we're dust and we're going back to dust. And there's nothing that can stop that process ultimately. We just can delay it. But I think the other thing is there's just uncertainty in medicine. I mean, you don't always know what's going to be. Sometimes you do, but you don't always know what's going to be a futile treatment. You know? Um, I think our Connected to this... Um there are other things to do that are not medical. It also seems to me that, that there are times when it can make more sense, less sense to say you're giving up um, than to say you're um, uh, exercising judgment that, it, that the, the goods that are offered you by medicine are, are really, no, um, doesn't, you're no longer going to seek out what is a, a, a very um, uncertain and even unlikely road to pursue your health. Um, so it's just kind of maybe a, theologically speaking. And, and I think, too, it's about addressing our fear of death and addressing the concerns that people have of, this is especially true of incapacitated patients, 
with families. If I, if I, as the as the child of the patient now incapacitated in the ICU, pull the plug and then use that language, am I killing mama? But but I think part of that is you have to involve chaplains and others in the conversation about what's behind the desire for more treatment. I had one case, pediatric case, it was a family that the grandmother was a primary caretaker of the grandson, and he had cancer and he had no, no but the, but his grandmother wanted to have, to have more and more treatment, and so the resident called an ethics consultation and said, look, if the kid codes, I'm gonna go get a cup of coffee. And five or 10 minutes later when it's all done, I'll go do a few palpitations. So in the chair of our, our, the ethics committee says, no, 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 no. If he's full code and he codes, you're gonna run at full speed and you're gonna, you're gonna do a real code. And if you don't wanna do that, you need to sit down with his grandmother and figure out why she doesn't wanna do this. Why she won't you know, make him a DNR. So I sat down with the grandmother. It was because she had to disconnect life support from her sister nine months ago. She still felt guilty about it. Nobody had talked to her about it. And once you could explain to her, you know, once you let her talk about it and, and, and let her express her feelings and let her see that she wasn't guilty, she could make her grandson a DNR too. Because she was there faithfully. And I said, you're not, not loving him by making him a DNR. You're just recognizing that his body is giving out. And then I told the resident, and I said, look, she was a Pentecostal. I said, she's always going to affirm that a miracle is possible because that's the Christian faith. Is it going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. But I said, in the worldview of her faith, I, and I, too, as a Christian, I'm always going to affirm that a miracle is possible. So what I tell patients is, I hope for a miracle, too, and I know it's within God's power. But I know they don't always happen. So while we pray for a miracle, let's also prepare for the fact that maybe, for whatever reason, God is not going to send one. So that way I can affirm their faith so they feel respected, but also say to them, theologically, we can't demand anything of God. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I work in hospice. So hospice has to have chaplains because that's what's written into the law. But yeah, I mean, they want us to see five patients, you know, four patients a day, five patients a day. They want us to do that. Um, so there are pressures of economic efficiency, especially in for-profit hospices. And one of the things I want to do is write an article on the grace of the inefficient hospice. Because I think efficiency in hospice is really a bad idea. Because you can't do hospice efficiently if you want to do it right. So I think there needs to be a real stern look at the world of the for-profit hospice. And what does it mean to make this pro try to make this process efficiency efficient in order to bring more money out of it? Because people are making a lot of money on hospice these days, people. Right. So to follow on Andrew's question from clinical cells and clinical stress prevalence, um, Sullivan also 
describes the ways in which chaplains are being used and utilized by institutions to bring kind of spiritual power to bear mm -hmm. to help the institution work more efficiently. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about I mean, like when you got the DNR, right? Like you mm -hmm. checked an institutional box. Like you helped that institution work more spiritually when you went talk to that. Okay, but here's. No, no, but let me finish. Let me finish. And, <laughs> and so, and so, how do, how do you make judgments between? Well, I might be being used right now, but this is also a means by which I can uh, enable discipleship or faithful following, however discerned. Like, like, how do you bring together those two? You might be being used or being like part of a regime. But you're also doing some creative work. But here's the thing. I don't necessarily... I mean, I've read Sullivan's book, too. Um, some of the work I did at Yale is actually... Uh, Sullivan talks about it, the stuff that happened at the United States Air Force Academy, which I was a part of. Um, the system is not entirely bad because it's a system. The system is bad when it becomes... puts efficiency over ethics and efficiency over discipleship. At the same time, when people are sick, time-bound decisions need to be made. And I try to, and I pray that I am making people, helping people make them faithfully within the context of the institution. You see what I'm saying? I mean, this is the, this is, this is the other thing I want to do, which is some of you might have read The Anticipatory Corpse by Jeff Bishop. And he has this chapter in, on chaplains that's really frustrated me for years. And I told him, I really don't like your chapter on chaplaincy, what I saw him last week. Because I said, I don't know what you want a chaplain to look like, because he makes the same critique Sullivan does. But he's saying chaplains need to have a prophetic role um, against the institution. And I've done some of that too. Like, just saying to the resident, look, she's not as... You don't need to call the psych people because they believe a miracle might happen. Like, they're just Christians. That's part of their worldview. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but, the, but the point is, but the point is, and you, I've seen this here many times because I was a chaplain here for a while. You have folk. Okay, look, big disclaimers. This, this is gross, gross, gross stereotypes. Gross, gross stereotypes. Those of you that have done work around Duke Medicine are going are gonna, to... Avoid shaking your heads, but you all know it's true. You have sometimes the residents coming down from northern, more secular cities encountering southern Pentecostalism and fundamentalist religion for the first time and not knowing what to do. Okay? And, and so the, the, the point is trying to help people understand that this is a rich worldview that they can work with but also not have to be captive to. Okay? Right? I mean, I don't think I can require a surgeon to do a surgery that he believes is contraindicated because the family believes that a miracle might happen and we should do. I mean, I think we have to find ways to respect both the clinical integrity of the clinician and the faith of the patient. And that's a difficult balance. But I think in that way, chaplains can be helpful. Now, is that serving the institution or help people live faithfully? Well, sometimes I help to tweak... People, you, you can't tell Jim Rawlings and Beatrice Chalco I said this. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I think you have to treat people's theology, but do it in a way that's responsible. If I know that there are Bible-believing Christians, I will take their Bible verses and I will say, 
Look, I hear you, I get it. But this is also what scripture says that may show you a different way that's equally faithful out of the book that you profess to believe. Oh, yeah, good point. But I've seen it work. But that way, you give people another route that, that's faithful. And it's not that you're trying to be efficient. It's just that our, I mean, I'm sure my imagination, theological imagination, is very constricted by my own class and race and, you know, all this. This constriction of my theological imagination. But as I invite more people into this conversation, my imagination grows and my possibilities, my, my imagination of faithful possibilities grows. That's great. To it's the just notion of general, this is my cross that I'm buried, this illness is my cross. You know what I mean? Right, so, yeah. Sometimes it's linked to the Luke text, sometimes not. So, so that's my, that, yeah, it's that broader question. I wonder, and this is a, a question of how to think about um, in what way does it mean for Jesus to have suffered? So the Son of Man must suffer. Um, we, in our kind of modern subjective age, tend to put a lot of emphasis on subjective experience. So we tend to think of like what it means for Jesus to redeem us through suffering. It's Jesus himself experienced as a kind of self-reflective self a certain amount of suffering and that that's what saved us. And it strikes me that with the Greek word pate, um, uh, you know, that that, which really means being moved, that, mm-hmm. that one might interpret that, and I guess this is a question I really want to answer, could you interpret that as that, is that what it meant for Jesus to suffer is not that he achieved some kind of qualia of subjective experience um, that was more than all of us or others, but that the 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 Son of God, the you know God become incarnate, gave Himself um, to the the movements of of death and sin and all else, and um, and then rose in triumph over that. So, but but the, the suffering might have to do more with the sense of being moved than with a kind of subjective experience of suffering. And, and, as, and as you know, this is sort of the other, the other model besides Anselm is Abelard. And Abelard says, you know, Jesus gives us an example of, you know, he did this not because he wanted to suffer, but he did this out of love. And so it's not the suffering that's the most important part. It's God's love for us. Well, I think you can see that in, the, in substitutionary theories also. But even within the context of substitutionary theories, could you see the point being not so much this qualitative, subjective suffering as much as the givenness yeah. of, the, of the righteous one against the Son of God. No, it's not, you know, I think that's another way of thinking. But I think we have to think carefully about the uses of atonement theory in pastoral care and the, the ways that they can be helpful and unhelpful. You know, I, I just yeah. think 
we have to be careful with our atonement because atonement models have practical consequences. Probably through my hospice Bible, like if you dropped it from the top of this building and it fell naturally to the place where it's most open, it will probably be open to Romans 8 when it hit the ground, which is this notion, neither height nor depth, or, I mean, part of it's because I'm Lutheran and of course Romans is, you know, Romans and Galatians is everything and everything else is secondary to that, but um, <laughs> that's my theological tradition, I own it. But, um, this notion that neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, that as far as we feel like we are subjectively from the love of God and the presence of Christ, we're not. It just feels like we are. And if we can trust, and I say, look, God is telling us this plainly because God knows in our suffering, we may not be able to feel this. But we still, in faith, have to trust that it's true. I mean, this is the other thing Lutheran talks talk about, is trusting the things that you can't have any subjective... I mean, this is at the heart of Luther's theology, is I have to trust these promises, even when I can't have the subjective experience of them. They're still true, and I keep believing until I start to feel that comfort and solace. So... It's not, I mean, I don't believe that we always have the subjective experience of, of that comfort, but I still think in, even in the lack of the subjective experience, I would want somebody to remind me that God is still with me. And I think part of the role with the community, because a lot of pastors don't go visit their sick people. You know, I have people, I have patients who belong to churches for 60, 65 years, and they're now sick and home out, and their pastors don't visit. <laughs> so I think it's really good Another way to remind people of the love of God is to remind them of the love of the church that if they have a church community or religious community, surrounds them. I mean, I come from a congregation that does illness really well. Like, you're sick and in the hospital, you'll have meals three days when you get home, just like that. Like, the ladies, and it's ladies, the ladies have the phone tree set up that as soon as you're out of the hospital, you have a refrigerator full of food and people will visit you. Um, I think that's another part of what we have to do um, as a ministry of presence. A, a number of us in the room are physicians or mm -hmm. in that way. How would you call, I, I've heard a lot about chaplaincy, from your chaplaincy lens, how would you call physicians to act and instruct patients to be healthy? 
I think just respect people's theological beliefs and let them know that you hear them. Don't dismiss them as crazy. Um, and I think part of it, too, is the doctors really get caught in the system and they want to do things fast. And, I, you know, I think of this book, some of you might have read God's, God's Hotel, when it talks about slow medicine. And I'm not sure that they allow you to practice slow medicine anymore. But we had one, we had one ER doc resident when I was in residency. We called him the angel of death. So he came in literally. I was standing with a family who had a 22-year-old who had just had a severe car accident and had a severe brain bleed. So he just came in the door and he said, you know, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I just want you to know that, you know, your daughter obviously has been in a car accident. She has a really bad brain bleed. There's not much we can do, but I'm really busy. You'll have decisions to make. I'll be back in 10 minutes and walk it out. And they were just like, I mean, deer in the headlights, but there was no physician there. And so I, as a chaplain, was left to comfort them. And that's part of my role, but I can't explain to them exactly what's going on with the brain bleed, what they might do. So I think as physicians, there are ways to practice empathy and letting people know that you're present with them without being there for an hour. But as long as you're present when you're with them, they'll know. And if you're distracted, they'll know. So it's the, it's the practice of being present that I think matters so much, um, whether religious or not. It's, of course, it's hard to do. It's hard to do as a chaplain. It's hard to do as a nurse. I mean, uh, that's what's hard in the system. This is relieving people of responsibility as a physician to say, you know, I'm not exactly sure how this would work as a physician, but I know one of the most blessed moments I had is I had to bring my dad up here for a really complicated surgery, and I, I didn't, I didn't want to bother the chaplains because I was like, I'll take care of some chaplain, and um. But, but uh, Debbie Morgan found out, who was at that time the palliative care chaplain, found out that I was here. And so she came down and found me in the OR. I think I might have told her at some point, no. And she just looks at me and she goes, I just want you to know, I know you're a chaplain, but today you're just a son, and I'm the chaplain. <sighs> so, but the point is, is you as a physician can say, you know, if, if I have a family whose patient is suffering from a mental illness, and Warren comes out and says, 
it's clear that you know your your brother is is really struggling and has in has psychosis and you know this and we're gonna we're gonna admit him to the VA we're gonna put him in the inpatient ward we're gonna try to help him you know reconstitute we're gonna do the best we can to adjust his medications we're gonna take care of that for you you know if you feel like you can visit visit and and be here with him but trust that he's getting the best care that he can get that requires a lot more trust in the medical system for a physician to say that than some people have. Okay. So I think sometimes the lack of trust in the medical system as a whole can undermine the effectiveness of the care physicians might try to you know, provide. But there are people, there are physicians in this hospital who are masters at, at presence. Um, and, you know, great people. I mean, there's three. <laughs> No, not in this room. Um, I mean, I learned, for instance, I, um, the, the doctors here in this room weren't practicing the Duke when I was working as a part-time chaplain here, but I learned a lot from Tony Galanis about how to do a family meeting with a family thinking about the cessation of care. And I learned a lot from sitting with Tony Galanis and watching him do this, because he knew there were chaplains, and every time he had one of these meetings in the middle of the night, he'd call, just because he knew we were around. And, um... And I learned a lot from watching him talk with families about that decision. Um, so there are a lot of people who are really good at this stuff that you just learn by watching, I think. Or learn by saying, yeah, like me with the death angel in New Haven. I will never talk to a family like that, God forbid. So you can also learn by, that's a really bad example. Note to self, don't do it like that. Tor. Aaron, thank you. This has been terrific. Uh, last year, last calendar year, there were nearly 40,000 deaths by overdose, unintentional deaths by overdose of narcotics in the United States. Most of them, I don't know, if, actually I don't know if it's most, many of them heroin, but many of them also prescription narcotics. Um, it's a number that's about fourfold higher than the rate 20-something years ago of, of unintentional deaths. I'm curious, how do you think about you're taking care of patients who are deathly sick for the most part. Uh, the folks who are dying of these overdoses are not. Um, but I, I wonder how... But the people that are still afraid of the morphine? I mean, there are... I see... This is what perplexes me about the over... Well, I should let you finish your question. Well, I was... <laughs> I was going to ask you to speculate. You're, you're a chaplain in an outpatient setting mm -hmm. with people dealing with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, Christians, uh, I mean, they're, they're hurting. And you know about this reality of this epidemic of, of narcotic overuse and the consequences it, it has, and yet they're in pain. So how do you talk to them with scriptural language, with this theological language, to help them understand how to respond to the reality of their suffering? Well, I think we have, we, we see, we're seeing increasingly two things, which is one, hospice patients in pain, not in pain. We just had this three weeks ago. This patient, clearly not in pain. I mean, when she was at the nursing home for respite, she was not in pain at all. She felt fine. She was talkative. She was lucid. When she gets home, she's in severe pain, and she knows what pills she wants because her caregiver had a history of 
narcotic abuse. So he's having her, who he's caring for, asking for the medications he wants. So we're seeing a lot of that. People boiling fentanyl patches and drinking the water. But I also say the morphine is designed to keep you out of pain and you're dying. And as I learned, I know, and this is one of the things that I, when I talked to Dr. Richard Payne about this years ago when I first got here, he said, so they're on hospice. So they die morphine addicts. You know, if it keeps you out of pain when you're dying, who, who, who cares if you're addicted to it for a week or two? I mean, at that point, what's, what's, what's the goal of avoiding addiction? if it's keeping you out of pain in the last weeks of your life. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so I'm, spec I'm specifying the population is not dying, but is in pain. Well, I think it's isolation. I mean, I think people are isolated, and that's, they, it's escapism. And I think, I, I don't know that I'm getting at your, you know, isn't there somebody with a grant from like Scotland working on this, sort of? He's taking notes at this point. But I think it's, uh, people use substances to escape realities they can't face. And what's the goal of the church? But to, to, to be a community of support um, that will be here um, when you need them. When I was in Manhattan, um, I, because of a, a, a fiscal situation in the church I was working at, I lost my job. Um, and my pastor, now this is, this, is, this is a church with resources. Um, you know, and he, when I told him this, he, he just puts his hand on my shoulder. We were standing in midtown Manhattan, he used this book. He says, you're going to be okay. You have a church that cares about you. We worship every day. We're going to be praying for you. And he said, if you have bills in the next couple of months you can't pay, you just put them in my mailbox. And you fear not and keep being faithful. The point is, I mean, and that, this is a church that has resources. Um, but the point is, the church can say to people, we're going to be here for you when you get sick, when you face life. You know, people like, you know, I'm a Steven, I was a Stevens minister for a while at my church, and, you know, people that will provide childcare when people are taking, you know, their, their spouse to the doctor. They're, you know, I think the ways that you help people avoid using drugs to escape reality is you stand with them so they don't face reality alone, and it's a lot less scary. And that's what it means to be the body of Christ. It's this overcoming of individualism, you know, this... I have to do it all myself. I mean, the greatest myth that the Americans teach us to live with is self-sufficiency. And the great, one of the greatest myths the church should help us unlearn is self-sufficiency. I think. That's just a theory. The risk of monopolizing your time, another question for you. Um, what a, something that came up in discussion recently was uh, benevolent deception mm -hmm. and uh, lying to patients because you think they can't handle it. And uh, I ended here saying that one of the difficult times for 
pastoral care in that is like on the deathbed or funerals, when you know someone didn't necessarily live a good life, but you feel compelled to wax eloquent and say that they did. What what do you do? How do you comfort families after someone has died? I don't. When you don't. If, if 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 they've lived a bad life, usually the family will tell you, or they'll tell you, and you can't wax eloquently that they live a good one, because then you're just a fake preacher and everybody at the funeral knows it. So when I preach those funerals, I just acknowledge they lived a really, really tough life. And we entrust them to the God of mercy and grace. Now, the question of not telling people that they're on hospice is a tricky one. And we have all kinds of team fights about, is it really okay to not tell somebody that they're on hospice. Uh, here's, here's the conflict of that, and, and we usually in our hospice as a team have come down on the side of, we need to tell the patient they're on hospice if they are, if they are cognizant and they can handle the reality. And if they don't wanna, if the family doesn't want us to be truthful to them, we usually don't take them under care. Um, because it's, de it's deceptive. And I, I, I think as professionals, you can't deceive people. But there's also, in certain cultures, the patient isn't supposed to know. It's the son that's, you know, the oldest son that's supposed to know, or, you know, another relative that's supposed to know. And that's a culturally acceptable practice in some cultures. It's teasing out when is it intentional deception and when is it culturally sensitive, and those are just really difficult decisions that I think you have to work out as a team. I don't think there's one hard or fast answer. Do you, um, this, this idea of suffering and illness being perhaps different than suffering as a, as a result of persecution, I wonder, um, could you speak some to maybe the role of war metaphor in medicine in relation to that, that if illness is our enemy, and suddenly all the passages, Bible passages that apply to enemies, all the Psalms and everywhere, apply to my illness now. But also all that baggage of well, what happens if I lose? Well, my faith isn't strong enough, I didn't pray enough, you know, I didn't tithe enough or whatever. That's why I'm losing to my enemy. Um, yeah. Is that all bound up in there with that war metaphor? And if we dispense the war metaphor, what happens then? I, I, don't, think that, I don't think those particular notions are um, well first off I think if you all haven't read it you should the New York Times article by our colleague here Kate Bowler called Death the Prosperity Gospel and Me from the New York Times um, it's a good place to start about this if I mean um, to It's not as much the war metaphor as it is the connection between sin and illness. Um, and what does my sin have to say about my illness, both my, my participation in the cosmic sin of a fallen world and my personal sin of, yeah, I have dementia and cirrhosis of the liver, that's because I was an alcoholic. And, you know, so yeah, I think it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes if people are responsible for their illnesses, Repentance of them before God is a pastoral thing. But sometimes you also have to tell people the world is fallen and, and God is with us in it, but it doesn't always make sense. Because here's the thing. 
it's sometimes better to have a bad theology that makes sense than to deprive a patient of any workable theology at all and leave them in a matrix of utter meaninglessness where the world is chaos and they're just free-floating. Because that might be hell on earth. It's just, a, you know. So sometimes you just have to say, I don't like this theology, but somehow it's operating and helping people make sense enough of the world to operate in it. That's where it's dangerous to start tinkering with people's theology lest you take the one they have away and not give them one they like to replace it with. Because then you leave them in the abyss of meaninglessness. And that's, that's cruel. Um, that really didn't answer your question, did it? But, but I don't think the war, the war metaphor is sometimes really useful. I mean, when I was a kid, my mom said, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting this, this cerebral palsy. We're going we're gonna to drive over there every week to do, we're going to do all the treatments. I mean, and I, look, I'm a lot better than I was when I mean, it took me until I was in fourth grade before I could even write my name with a pencil. So, you know, sometimes the war metaphor, you keep going and you, you know, I don't know if I went, won, but I kept going and it worked. So sometimes the war metaphor can work, but I, but I think there's maybe better ones out of struggle or pressing toward the goal or persevering or, you know. Metaphors matter. Aaron, thank you so much for this conversation.